This podcast discusses violence, drug use, and other adult themes. Listener discretion is advised. All right, welcome back to another episode of Breaking Pod. It's been far too long since we've released one of these, but we are back with season four, episode eight, Hermanos. And I'm joined as always by my co-host on Breaking Pod, Josh Goldman. Josh, how are you? Zach, I'm doing well. I am, uh, you know, still continuing with the quarantine haircut here, which is no haircut. Wait, so you still have not had a haircut? I have not, I have not had a haircut in oh six months. Goodness. Is that why your camera is off right now? It's not. I I thought it was on my my uh the computer I'm on must be it must be uh doing it for me because it's like don't let anybody see your hair. That's it's, amazing. Uh, You'll have to send long. me a text picture later because I'm very curious. Yeah, to, I will. I mean, you've been saying you need a haircut for about four months now. <laughs> yeah. Well, usually my my usual routine is like every every one and a half months is is like a good time to get the haircut. Yeah, sure. You know, to keep it. Uh, but you know, I'm not seeing anybody. I really we really haven't gone anywhere. I'm still working remotely. And so, you know, everybody who lives in my house loves me. Well, and I think so- I think the question is, does Maureen like the like the hair? I mean, I think I mean, Sally certainly loves me as well. And she would still love me if I didn't get my yeah. haircut for six months. But she also might be like, OK, it's time. It's time. But she might not like she might not like your hair. She would still love you, but she wouldn't like your hair necessarily. Right. Yeah. So does yeah. Maureen like your hair? Uh, she I think she's sort of indifferent about it. It's it, you know, if I don't use any styling product in it, it gets really poofy. <laughs> but I do use some product in it it can be somewhat mobile so yeah it's it's interesting it's most it's gotten to the point where i have curly poofy hair and it's starting to fall in front of my eyes which is you know sheep you have dog. to think yeah sheep dog. yeah it, it's bad so i'm thinking I, i'm i've reached the point where you know should i just let it keep going until i actually get a real haircut i mean have i reached the point of no return just to see what's going to happen amazing you know could i go a whole year that would be february 2021 i mean at this and point I know we, yes right you yeah, mean, right exactly yeah. you know i go i go back and forth day day in and day out you know should i cut it should i trim it should, but i but i also i've been taking a picture of myself every day for about half a year oh nice so i'm curious to see if you can see sort of the the uh, the change yeah, you're so doing one of those time lapse collages. Yeah, exactly. That's I, right. I love so it. we'll see. We'll see. But it's quite long and, uh, you know, uh, very curly, but uh, manageable still at the moment. Okay. Well, I will expect a, a text picture from you later. I need to yeah, see what this absolutely. looks like. I don't know. Would you rather me just like let it, let it be normally? Or should I poof it to its maximum, <laughs> maximum uh, length? Oh, I, I definitely, feel like I should do that. I definitely need to see maximum poof for sure. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Okay. Good. Yeah, do that. Good, good, good. Yeah. Uh, I look forward to it. Um, well, dear listeners, I'm sorry that we have been away from the podcasting for almost a full month now. It was certainly not our intent. We uh, we had it all queued up and we're ready to go with one scheduled release per week. I think we're going to try to get back on schedule. And so we'll release a few per week, I think, for for a while now. At least that's our plan. Um, but I, my, my mom actually has been, I won't, I won't go into too much details here. Josh, you know, a lot of the story, but my mom has been fighting cancer for a long time or she had been fighting cancer and, uh, she, she took a really bad turn for the worse, uh, last month and ended up passing away at the end of August. So I was back and forth to Philadelphia where she and my dad, uh, lived, uh, many times last month to be with a family and support and. Um, be at her at her side in the hospital and then ultimately to plan the funeral and everything so it was a whirlwind uh last month for me but we are we're back at it on the podcast and i have to say that you know this is the first time that i've lost someone 
close to me in my family or friend circles from cancer. Uh, I've certainly known people who I've lost to cancer, but this is the first time that it's been, it's, you know, it's, it's struck this, this close to home, if you will. And I have to say that it, it gives me, an, you know, the whole experience of, of going through that and watching her go through that, more importantly, um, gives me a, an appreciation for the type, of, the type of introspection that a cancer diagnosis um, brings about or causes. And for that reason, I think it gives me an, a, a greater appreciation for what's going on in this show that we podcast so much about. You know, it all kicks off with Walt's cancer diagnosis and... Um, and obviously, you know, Walt responds to his diagnosis in a very different way than my mom did, but fundamentally every person who hears that word from their doctor, I think wrestles with these very existential questions that we see Walt wrestling with. Now, you know, Walt and someone like my mom come to very different conclusions about that. Um, thankfully in my mom's case, uh, but I think it gives me an appreciation for just the, the, for, for what's at stake here. Uh, in what's going on in the lives of, um, in the lives of Walt and all of those around him. Yeah, definitely. So, and, and Zach, you know, you, you talking about cancer and, and sort of your personal experience with it now and, and thinking about it from the show's perspective, I, I wanted to get your opinion, you know, cause we really haven't talked about this on the podcast so much, but do you think that there was, and I think probably the answer is yes, but do you think that there was specific symbolism in Vince Gilligan choosing Walt to have cancer? you know, as the illness, as opposed to something else. There are myriad illnesses he could have chosen, but specifically cancer, because, you know, the the way that cancer works is that it takes over your body and it's sort of like you you become out of control. And and sort of what we see Walt do as a character, not to get completely away from from your personal story, but uh, but you know, it his the the evil, the sort of meth business that he starts to build, it starts it starts to eat away at him, almost like the cancer was. I, do you think that there is symbolism there and that that was on purpose? Oh, absolutely. Yeah. I mean, I think cancer is a great, a great choice for the thematic material of this show for the reason that you just outlined. It's also something that touches everyone. I mean, as I mentioned, I I know other people who have passed from cancer. This is the first time it's been this close to home for me, but I'm sure many of our listeners have lost a loved one, uh, almost certainly grandparents, right? Um, but very possibly siblings, parents, um, hopefully not children, but very possibly even children. And so uh, cancer is, is all around us. It affects so many people. And so in that sense, this show is relatable to so many people who watch it. But like you were saying too, I mean, cancer is distinct from other things in that it's not a, it's not a pathogen that invades your body like a you know, methicillin-resistant staph infection and can kill you that way. Uh, it's something in which your your cells, you know, multiply and divide in wrong ways and mutate and eventually take over you and kill you. And so there's something uh, almost allegorical, perhaps even spiritual, certainly social and psychological about sort of thinking about um, the, the the arc of Walt's character development with respect to his cancer and you know how how. Um, how the direction that he takes his life is in some ways a product of the cancer, not necessarily biologically, but certainly spiritually or psychologically uh, or sociologically. So yeah, it's a great observation. And I think a very good point. Yeah. Well, I think I speak for all of our listeners that we're, we're very sorry for your loss and, and we hope you're doing well and that your family's doing well. And that hopefully that, you know, whatever small relief that podcasting can bring, that hopefully it can bring you a little bit of solace in, in difficult times. Well, I appreciate that, Josh. Uh, I know that you've been a, a friend through all this, and I appreciate your support. 
Um, and I uh, am excited to get back into going through this wonderful show we have here. So today we have season four, episode eight, uh, Hermanos. And this is about uh, Hermanos, of course, again, you know, as the, uh, as the Spanish speaker on the show, <laughs> means brothers. I don't know right. if you knew that, Josh. It means brothers. <laughs> yeah, the only reason I actually knew that is, uh, is because, I don't know if you ever watched Arrested Development. Oh, but, yeah, um, of course. But, but Joe Bluth. Uh, often says hermanos you know that's so right. he's, i forgot about and he, that and he's very uh he's very uh you know deliberate with how he says it so um there's some confusion in 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 humorous ways in that show over the word hermanos so yes yeah, so that was uh that's my spanish education i love it well it's a uh, it's a great uh a great person to give you that education will arnett uh, yeah, as exactly. joe bluth um yeah. so it does mean brothers uh i actually well, while while we're at it, I'll just I'll just go go right here for it. Um, nits to pick. Uh, I am not a Spanish speaker. I just made that sort of tongue in cheek joke. Um, but the I was looking up some stuff on this episode, and I found that um, others have criticized this episode, and I will take their word for it for this um, lengthy flashback scene that we have in the right. in uh, Don Eladio's pool or or the poolside. Um, have criticized that scene for being filled with non-native Spanish speakers who are trying to speak Spanish. Right. And more specifically, the Hermanos brothers, who are not really brothers, but business partners, uh, uh, Gus Fring and his partner, uh, they're supposed to be from Chile. Uh, so they're supposed to be Chilean Spanish speakers. And I, I don't know this, and I don't know what it would sound like, and I don't know how I would recognize it, but uh, Chilean Spanish has apparently a very uh, prominent or uh, distinctive accent and they do not have it at all. So uh, yeah, I, yeah. I, I, was, I was finding out that this scene has been criticized for that, and it, it, it kind of ruins the scene a little bit for me. Um, but anyway, I, just, I, I digress a little bit. I'm not a Spanish speaker, but there's, there's one of my nits to pick right there, Josh. Yeah, yeah. You know, the thing about, I, I, I've always found this fascinating that, you know, we as native English speakers who, I don't know if you know any other languages, I don't know much of anything. I took Latin in high school, which if you're hey, a young, if you're a young person, uh, it's it's an okay language to take, but I will I will say it provides zero practical value in communicating with others. You know, maybe some uh, some word origins that could be helpful if you're ever in the uh, spelling bee. There you go. Yeah. But but I can't remember a lot of Latin. But I will say that you know, for a native English speaker, uh, these types of things don't really bring me out of the episode because I would I would not know. But I will say that I don't know if you ever see if you've ever seen the show Narcos. On, of course, yeah. Uh, we, I think we talked about it on a previous episode. But the person who plays Pablo Escobar, mm -hmm. Wagner Mora, is actually not a Spanish speaker either. I didn't realize that. Yeah. And he had to learn Spanish to, to be Pablo Escobar. Totally he had me a, fooled. Yeah. He's a native. Um, I think he's from Brazil. So he speaks Portuguese. Okay. okay. Close enough. Yeah. Um, so it's, yeah so, but but I, ha I have spoken to some people who are, are from, you know, Colombia. And they said that his accent is wrong. You know, uh, he's doing the best he can. But, sure. you know, for someone like for someone like me who has no idea what the different accents would sound like he was a great pablo escobar but you know for someone who speaks spanish is is from the country or is from a, a neighboring country in south america it, it might throw you off a little bit yeah that totally makes sense i normally consider myself having a pretty keen ear for english um english speaking accents right uh yeah, and yeah. oftentimes actually when sally and i are watching a show or a movie i'll point out something like i don't think that person is actually british or i don't think that person's actually right. french uh, you know, right, or right, French right. Canadian or whatever. And I, I normally, I tend to be right. Um, yeah. I think Sally would back me up on that, but obviously with languages I don't speak, I have no idea. So yeah, yeah, uh, yeah. I'm just That's along for the ride. 
Um, okay, well, let's start off with a two-minute summary here, Josh. We'll give it our give the summary our ratings, and then we'll proceed with some of our uh, our selections from the episode. All right, so Hermano, season four, episode eight. In a flashback, Gus visits Hector, aka Tio Tuco's uncle, in a nursing home and informs him of the death of his nephews after their attempt to kill Hank. In the present, Gus is questioned by Hank, the DEA, and the APD, but convinces everyone except Hank that he is innocent. Still believing Gus is a drug kingpin, Hank enlists Walt to plant an illegal tracking device on Gus's car. Walt sees Mike is present and shows Gus the device, but Gus calmly tells him to plant it. Walt tells Jesse to poison Gus as soon as possible. Gus visits Hector again, and in another, in another flashback, Gus and his business partner Max meet Hector in 1989 when they approach drug kingpin Don Eladio. Gus and Max offer to produce high-quality meth for Don Eladio, with Max as the cook and Gus as the businessman. At Don Eladio's instruction, Hector shoots and kills Max as a warning to Gus. In the present, Gus hints to Hector that he, Gus, will one day exact his revenge. All right. I don't think that's too bad, Josh. What do you think? No, it's not too bad. It, it covers all the major points. I give it a B. Yeah. It's not It's not terrible. It's pretty good. The only thing I will say is, you know, sometimes they try to, the, the writer of these summaries tries to give you a little, little uh, background just in case you forgot, you know, Hector, a.k.a. Tio. Now, I don't remember him being called Tio that much. But, you know, there are other things in here where we, we could have used, you know, a little bit more explanation. Sure. Like, what if you didn't know what APD was? If you weren't thinking. Yeah, and I, know, don't, I don't think that it's linked in the Wikipedia article either. Oh, my God. <laughs> Disastrous. I, I'm sure there's a great Wikipedia article on the Albuquerque Police Department. Oh, man, I'm finding out right now. <laughs> Can't wait. Yeah, so I, I will say, you know, like, the, the, the choice that the writer here made, you know, what to explain a little bit further and what to just leave be. I have a little I have a little qualm with that, but but otherwise, I think it's a relatively relatively good summary of the episode. Agree. I mean, I think it does cover all the points. Uh, my quibble with it would be that maybe um, maybe some of the wording could be a little bit stronger. For example, sure. Gus calmly tells him to plant it. I mean, Gus was very strongly insisting. Yeah, yeah and we're going to hear that exactly. Yeah, yeah. Um, and then uh, Hector shoots and kills Max. I mean, it was. Uh, I mean, I, 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 I'm coming up empty on more vivid ways to describe what happened, but shoots and kills doesn't quite capture to me that poolside scene. Right. Um, yeah. No. It it doesn't really deal with the sort of the gravitas of that moment where you know you're not expecting any violence to happen, and if you are, based on the way the conversation is going, you're expecting it to happen to Gus, not to Max. So. It is a little shocking when you watch it for the first time. Right. Yeah, totally agree. By the way, Albuquerque Police Department does indeed have its own Wikipedia page. The Albuquerque Police Department, parentheses, APD, is <laughs> the go. largest municipal police department in New Mexico. Wow, look at that. All right, Zach, we Quite might have to end the podcast fan. early here so I can go edit the Wikipedia page there you go. for Link season it. two. Link yeah, it exactly. up. Yeah, <laughs> All exactly. Right. All right. So uh, I think we already talked about some broader thoughts and themes. Josh, let's just roll into best scene. And since we were just talking about it, it's that end scene in Mexico. Now, um, there's no audio here. It is all in Spanish. So the audio wouldn't do much good for you and I, um, probably for our listeners who are, are undoubtedly more, uh, more versed in modern yeah. languages than we are. But Unless they're native Spanish speakers and, and could tell that the accents are very poor. True. Yeah, which, very, you know, very good point. I would just frustrate them more. Yeah, very good point. Well, so we both selected this as the best scene. Uh, I will defer to you first as to why you selected it. Yeah, I think that the scene is, you know, we talked a little bit about how the, the summary doesn't quite do it justice in terms of the tension that you feel here. But 
this is a pretty extended scene. I believe it probably runs 10 minutes of the 44 minutes, maybe even a little bit longer. I think it is a little bit longer. Yeah. Yeah. So, you know, it's done in this like sepia toned, you know, you very clearly in a different location in a different time period. And, you know, one of the things that I like about the scene is that for the most, I think for the entirety of the, the series so far, we've only seen Hector as, as sort of this crippled person. We're not sure how he got to be that way, but, but in this flashback, you're seeing him as this sort of very brash, very cocky, very unpleasant person. You know, he he uh, relieves himself in the pool. Yeah. In Don <laughs> pool. yeah what mean, is it, what is up with that? That's such a strange play. Very strange. It, it would make it would make more sense if Don Eladio was the one doing it. But for like right. for one of his henchmen to just be like, I'm going to relieve myself where my boss swims. It was like, what? Yeah, exactly. What are you talking? And, what are and, you doing? You know, someone says like, "Aren't you, aren't you worried about it?" What he says something like, "I don't know what what is he going to do to me?" Yeah, it's just very it's very cocky. Um, and, and so I just think that the sort of the tension that it builds is is impressive. But I also like that we get a little bit of Gus's background because I think to this point, Gus is still a mystery. I mean, like we don't really know that much about him, and it's interesting to see you know him on the other side of things. Mostly when we see him in the present. He's very, you know, much in charge and, and we never see him falter here. You see a completely different side of him, a very nervous person and, and someone who doesn't, who isn't entirely sure what's going to happen or, or what the outcome of this meeting is going to be. Yeah, I agree with everything you have said there. Um, I will add a couple of things. One, you said we hear more about Gus's background. We know from the previous, was it last episode or the one before that, but when, uh, when Hank is doing the investigation, um, Hank's boss can't find anything on Gus in Chile before he immigrated to the United States. Right. Um, so it's a black hole. And the, the APD, not the APD, the, the DEA folks with Hank are speculating like why that could be. Why, why can we find no records of this man existing in Chile? Um, Pinochet, the um, very, very bad ruler of Chile, um, the, the timeline would line up for, for Fring to have potentially been involved in some really bad things with that regime, but nobody knows. It's a black hole. And we don't get a more firm answer here, but we do get some sort of confirmation that Gus was doing something in Chile, right? Because um, Don Eladio, I think, tells him, we know who you are, right, from, from Chile. And so there's a backstory there that we don't know about. I was doing some internet research and learned that Gilligan intentionally left the chile backstory open-ended so that we could just sort of draw our own conclusions or we, we just know that there's something there but he didn't want to go down a rabbit hole kind of creating this elaborate backstory for gus much better i think more effectively more effective thematically for me at least to to wonder and to not have that answer be out there yeah yeah definitely and, and the other thing that i like about the scene you know is the scene that that um that tags along right after it, which is you know back in the present day when you know Gus is is back in the nursing home, you know visiting Hector, and you know you might remember from the scene um in Mexico where after after Hector shoots Max, he you know he puts Gus on the ground and makes him look at him, and and in the present day you know Gus tries to get Hector to look at him and he won't look into his eyes. Oh, so there's point, sort of a yeah. There's sort of a little symmetry there, um, you know, with with what Hector made him do in the past versus what he can't do in the present. You know, I will add one more thing, uh, another nit to pick, again, discovered through my internet research, but 
in this scene in the pool or by the pool. Uh, in addition to these guys not speaking with convincing uh, Spanish accents and certainly not Chilean accents on the part of Gus and Max. In addition to that problem, there's also the problem of the the light filtering. You already mentioned that it's done in this sort of sepia tone. Mm-hmm. And apparently, the filter that they used in post-production for that uh, made the concealer makeup underneath the eyes of these actors really pop. And so if you look carefully in the scene, uh, you'll see some of them look kind of you know, like pandas or something because they, the, the eye concealer underneath their eyes is really popping. So they have these like big white uh, smudges under their eyes, yeah. basically. It's pretty funny. Yeah, it's not, it's, yeah, it's not great. Uh, but, but the scene itself is very impactful. Agreed. Yeah. I mean, and that, that murder is so shocking, right? Because um, it's just, it's amazing because you, you don't see it coming, first of all, at all. Um, you don't see the gun out before it's employed. You see Gus trying to talk his way out of a jam. And the Gus we know, like you said, is always in control. We don't see him slip up now. And so we're kind of thinking like he's going to get out of this. And then he doesn't. And we find out because he is all of a sudden just literally showered with blood from Max getting shot. It's a horrible, Mm -hmm. gruesome scene. Yeah, yeah. It's another great moment from Breaking Bad in terms of surprising the audience. Yeah, very true. All right, um, so that was our best scene. How about best moment, Josh? What is your nomination for best moment? Yeah, we talked a little bit about it in the, in the summary, but this is the, the scene where, you know, Walt is basically found out by Mike that, that he's going to put this tracker, you know, on Gus's car. And so he, Walt makes this really strange decision, I think, for, in my opinion, that to to go into Los Pollos Hermanos and to show Gus that he has this tracker. And I think he's, I think it's a, it's another moment of self-preservation, but Gus's response is, is really interesting. And, and, you know, he tells Walt to put it on the, on the car and we're going to hear, you know, just the sort of the delivery of the dialogue, which I think is really fascinating. I didn't do it. I didn't do it. Do it. Do it. May I help you with your order? Yeah, it's it's just so great. Um, you know, the the two different deliveries of do it. I mean, a lesser actor would not deliver that well, but you know, the first one is just so like, well, just go go for it. And then it's the very much, then it's the very like in control. Yeah, Gus. totally. Do it. I I love that second delivery. So, anytime my my child acts up, I'm gonna say do, do it. it. Yeah, that's perfect. Yeah, <laughs> they respond. Yeah, exactly. I but love yeah, it. Yeah, I, I think the 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 moment. It's just such a small thing, but it just shows. I I love these little scenes that illustrate the power dynamic between Walt and Gus. And, I agree. I agree. And here, it's just so very clear that Gus is in charge and you know, Walt is this sort of stammering mess. Yeah. And, he was bringing and, Walt to heel in this moment for sure. And I, I wish, I wish that we could show the visual with it because you know, part of it's the audio that we just heard, but even more of it, I think is Gus's expression as he delivers that. Um, and I think yeah. it, it really sort of alarms Walt. It makes you wonder if, if Gus is ever, you know, worried for his safety because, you know, Walt could have come in there with a gun. Like he, he's holding, something beneath his jacket i mean he's trying to conceal that he has the tracker so i like i, I don't it 
in the present day that we see Gus, it never seems like he's phased in, in this way. Yeah, no, very true. He always always appears to be in control. Um, except for that that one scene by the poolside. Yeah, which was in the past. Exactly. Um, all right, so my best moment, very small thing here, no audio to go along with this, and we don't need to spend much time talking about it, but um, I just love when Hank and Marie are over at Walt and Skyder's house. And before we see them all gathered at a table, the camera is panning through the basement where we just see Walt's bags of money that Skyler, of course, has, has bagged up and everything, but just bags of money. And so what they're doing is literally dining you know, at table with this delicious looking food they have while sitting on top of, almost literally, sitting on top of these um, giant piles of cash in the basement. And uh, Hank and Marie just have no idea. And I just like the sort of irony there you know the the viewer is in on the joke but hank and marie have no idea yeah and, and it's also great because it, it's one of those things where um you know it, i think that it's these moments that hank will you know should he ever find walt out we'll look back on and be like i was so close but yet so far away i, I never really knew you know all these things that he was doing and yet it was right under my nose the whole time yeah, totally agree. Well, our um our last one to talk about best writing nomination. We both had the same thing. And I think this definitely bears uh bears some uh listening because this is a really insightful conversation. Before I play the actual conversation, Josh, I will say that the music in the background here that you're going to hear is very good and an interesting choice I think for this conversation. This is a Mozart concerto for harp and flute. And it's probably going to be familiar to, uh, to our listeners here. It sounds like this. So very idyllic sounds almost like, a, I mean, I would describe it as bucolic. It's the beautiful harp. You're kind of like walking through a pasture. Etc. And so this is this is the kind of music that you would expect to hear, perhaps. Um, well, what I I think what I'd really expect to hear is that like on a you know when I call United Airlines, this is like the hold music, and I'm hearing it in like <laughs> yeah. almost a polyphonic way through my phone and right. um and all that. But but I think this would be good music at least for a for the waiting room of a cancer you know radiation um unit uh, because it is it is calming. Um, but the interesting thing to me is that that music thematically does not at all jive with the sort of the the paradigm or the view that Walt is espousing here because what he is saying is that it's all about control right it's not about it's not about beauty and it's not about calm it's all about control and, and i think that's a really interesting pairing to hear so we'll hear uh we'll hear a little bit of that dialogue right now it's like they say, you know, man plans and God laughs. That is such bullshit. Excuse me? Never give up control. Live life on your own terms. Yeah, no, I, I get what you're saying. But, but uh, cancer's cancer, so... What the hell with your cancer? I've been living with cancer for the better part of a year. Right from the start, it's a death sentence. That's what they keep telling me. Well, guess what? Every life comes with a death sentence. So every few months I come in here for my regular scan, knowing full well that 
one of these times, hell, maybe even today, I'm going to hear some bad news. But until then, who's in charge? All right, so until then, who's in charge? Me. He is. Uh, so, so there's this one guy who's, I mean, in Walt's defense, this guy who's next to him is kind of, um, I guess, what would I say? Like spouting these like cliched truisms, right? Yeah. Uh, yeah. It, it's like they say, if you want to make God laugh, tell him your plans. <laughs> I mean, cl- clearly this man is, is uh, like wrestling with his diagnosis and is, right. is, you know, is not pondering very deep thoughts um, in that regard. But yeah. I just find Walt's response to this so interesting. He says, you know, that's such bullshit, first of all. And then he says, never give up control. They, you know, I've been living with cancer for the better part of a year. To hell with your cancer. Uh, they told me it was a death sentence. I'm still here. Maybe one day I'll get bad news. But until then, who's in control? Me. I mean, it's, it's, pretty, it's a pretty blunt and um, pretty brutalist and... Uh, uh, nihilistic way of looking at it, right? And I think this is this is maybe where you know my experience watching my mom battle cancer for the past three years has um, you know shaped my understanding of this scene here, right? We have two people who are facing similar diagnoses. I don't know the severity of the other man's cancer, but they're they're both cancer diagnoses, right? So let's just let's just say for the the moment that they're equivalent diagnoses because they're both C A N C E R. And, uh, and so that cancer diagnosis strikes them both as a sort of earth shattering piece of news. And one guy really struggles with how to accept, um, what he can't control. And the other guy instead says, no, I'm going to, to assert control and to keep control. But the, you know, the reality is that's not, that's not how cancer works. I mean, um, my mom, for example, was in a, was, was receiving medical treatment from a world-class hospital. Um, doctors who really knew what they were doing. She had you know, a recourse to some of the best minds in modern medicine, and uh, and the cancer still defeated her physically. Right. So the interesting thing is to Walt, it's really all about a physical battle, right? And the real control is is about physical control. I think the way we should think about this, the way Walt should think about this, and the way he probably would be if he were a uh, a more profound person is that the victory over cancer comes not from defeating the cancer physically, you know, at a, at a um, cellular level, but rather at the, at the response that we have to the cancer, you know? So when my mom did uh, finally pass away, um, I described it to my family members as, you know, this isn't mom, this isn't cancer defeating mom. This is actually mom um, defeating cancer. And, um, she, you know, she, and I say that because she didn't go to the grave full of terror and fear, um, and resignation. She actually went full of hope for what is to come. We, of course are, you know, my whole family is Christian and my mom placed her hope in something else. You know, she didn't just say, this is all about the physical world around me and this physical thing that's assaulting my body. This is, um, something else. This is, this is someone else's plan for me. And the true victory is in surrendering to that rather than trying to seek and retain whatever control I may have. And so I, I think this conversation is interesting because, because it pits those two worldviews exactly against each other. And I, if I have a nit to pick in this scene, it's that 
the sort of foil for Walt, this goofy guy next to him in the waiting room, is not a very good spokesperson for the other way, if that makes sense. You know, Walt is espousing his nihilistic approach, and all this guy can respond with is like, you know, these cliche truisms like we talked about. I, I wish that he was kind of a better mouthpiece for the virtuous way of wrestling with the cancer diagnosis, but but I'm I'm nitpicking here. I think we see on full display the sort of nakedness of Walt's response right there. Yeah, I think that the problem with with having someone sort of go toe to toe here with Walt is that it's not a character we've seen before. So to introduce someone who all of a sudden is on the same intellectual level who could possibly come in with something that the audience might root for instead of Walt here. I think that was probably a deliberate choice to have, you know, essentially you watch this scene and you think that you might not agree with Walt, but you clearly think that he has a stronger point of view than this other guy, this other guy who's, you know, what I would call a nervous Nelly, you know, he's sort of in that, in that position where he's still wrestling with his diagnosis. I think that the the two things I want to point out about this this scene and the reason that I like it so much, you know, as as the best writing in this episode is the first thing is that, you know, Walt says, you know, to hell with cancer, who's in control, I'm in control. But if you even look back at episodes where we saw him really physically struggling with the cancer, you know, we've seen scenes of of this character on his hands and knees like throwing up in the toilet and being, you know, having coughing fits and being unable to do you know, even like the most basic things that he wants to be able to do. So yes, at this moment, he's talking about this, you know, I have this ability to to be in control and, and it's my choice. But, but really when he's, when he's dealing with the cancer, um, he's not really in control. And, and it's very clear to the audience that he hasn't always been in control. The second thing that I'll say about this scene is that I don't think Walt is entirely wrong in part of what he's saying in that, you know, if you're diagnosed, I think to your point, what you were saying is that you, you sort of have to mentally overcome your diagnosis. And, and I think at, at first, that's what it sounds like he's saying is that, you know, I'm not going to let this beat me. I'm going to beat it. Um, and I think to, to part of that can be true that if you're given, if you're dealt a bad hand, if you're dealt a, a difficult diagnosis or whatever the case may be, that that you can, if you're able to and strong enough to, choose to make the best of the time that you have. So yes, you might not be in control of the ultimate end, but perhaps you can take the time that you have to do the different things that you wanted to do, whether it's you know something that you wanted to leave behind or relationships you want to repair. So I do think that that point of his argument in that, you know, basically screw cancer. I'm going to take this into my hands. Like, I think that that could be a positive thing were it coming from someone else. Yeah, I think that's, that totally makes sense. Um, I think we're on the nits to pick Josh, and then we've got the MVP tally. So I've already talked about a couple of my nits. The, I'll just add one more though. Again, that poolside scene. So we have the violent shot to the head that just showers Gus in blood and Don Eladio sitting next to Gus at the table in an all white suit <laughs> and has not a speck on him. Did, th- did that strike yeah. you as odd? Yeah, absolutely. He's got the, uh, he's got the blood uh, resistant coat on. Yeah, exactly. You, yeah, there's a special spray you can get if you're a drug yeah, kingpin. Yeah, it's like Rain-X, but for blood. <laughs> yeah, exactly, exactly. Yeah, I have a couple nits to pick. Um, the first one is, 
you know, when we didn't really even talk about this, but the the DEA APD questioning of Gus, um, I don't understand why Hank is the only one to try to like poke holes in the story. Now, I do realize that that Gus is an upstanding citizen. He's been a long uh, supporter of the APD, the DEA, but like Hank is the only one who even there's some pretty clear holes in Gus's story. And he's the only one who seems to be giving any credence to possibly he might not be telling the truth. Everybody else is just sort of like, well, seems like a good guy to me. Well, everything makes sense. Oh, he, <laughs> he reconnected with Gail. That sounds good to me. And I'm laughing because that's almost verbatim what <laughs> like what they say. Yeah, I don't, I don't, like, I can't I remember that. I thought he seemed honest. <laughs> I thought he yeah. seemed friendly. The guy with the, the mustache, who's the, the boss? I can't yeah, remember I never, his name. I never but, remember his name, but I, yeah. yeah. Well, we'll call him mustache and sure. he is, he's just all about, he's all about Gus. My next uh, nit to pick is. Well, it's because Gus that, gives money to the department. Like there's, there's definitely a little bit of, there's a hint of corruption going on there, right? Because he, he donates to their fundraisers. He's a big booster, community booster for the department. So, you yeah. know, so he's basically bought them off. You know, even even if they don't acknowledge it or know, I mean, he's certainly unconsciously influenced their thinking about him because he's Gus, the friendly businessman. Yeah, exactly. My my next nit to pick is that you know, there's this moment where Walt goes to Jesse and and he he's you know trying to convince him to come on, speed up the poisoning. We got to get this going. We got to kill Gus. And Jesse goes to the bathroom, and at that exact moment, Jesse gets a text, which of course Walt reads, and then he quickly puts the phone back. I just, these moments where like the perfect text to reveal something to a character, it's just a little bit, a little bit uh, cheesy. Yeah, you know? I hear you for sure. My last nit to pick in this episode is, you know, there's a moment where Saul is taking money to Andrea, uh, Jesse's one-time girlfriend. You know, he, I guess Jesse um, delivers her money every so often to uh, make sure she's okay. And we get this wide shot of her new house and Saul says something like, oh, I had, you know, you got a great deal on this house. But if you notice, Zach, and this might be something you uh, you might pick up on, too, because you're a fellow parent. But there is no there's no railing on the stairs. Nope. And that is a that is a very big hazard for <laughs> someone with a young child, even someone of, of Brock's age. So, you know, uh, a little a little bit dangerous. No you, wonder she got a good deal. You know, I um, when I was a kid in one of my houses growing up, um, I was running down wooden stairs. It wasn't even a railing situation. They were just slippery wooden stairs. Yeah. I slipped, hit my back, and uh, there's a bundle. I, I learned this like the hard way, but there's a bundle of nerves at the base yeah. of your lungs that basically controls your respiration. And if they get hit really hard, it's actually, it's, you know, you're like if you could ever, ever get hit in the solar plexus, same yeah. same principle like you can't breathe you physically cannot yeah. breathe uh the same thing can happen if you get hit in the right spot in the back too hard and so that's exactly what happened i fell hit my back on the hard wooden stair and then i could not breathe at all like i couldn't even it wasn't even like getting the wind knocked out of me i couldn't um my, my i had no control over my my lungs it was the most terrifying feeling i've ever had uh yeah and it was like that for probably 20 seconds until it was able to to pass and everything but yeah, stairs can be pretty hazardous. That's the moral of that story. Yeah, no, I uh, I fell down the stairs like two months ago. Oh boy, <laughs> not great. I, I have this weird thing, you know. I have a I have a three month old baby, and every time I go down the stairs, I'm like cautiously feeling for that first step down. Yeah, it's, sure. it's, it's tricky. It's tricky. Yeah. I don't, don't care for stairs. Are they wooden stairs? Because I find them way more treacherous than carpeted. We have wooden stairs, but they are carpeted like in the middle part okay, going yeah, up. Yeah. So it, it's okay. a little bit. But we have hardwood 
going down to the first step. So I'm always like feeling for that first step. Sure. It's a little, little bit tricky. Yeah. Oh boy, be careful. But yeah. Yeah. And my son has fallen down the stairs twice and that is the scariest thing. I don't know if your kids have ever fallen downstairs, but you know, their little bodies just sort of like flop around. It's very, it's very frightening. Yeah. So our old house was a single story. Um, yeah. and there was like one part where it was just like two steps up to like a slightly raised room. Right. Um, and so those steps obviously were not a big deal here. We have steps, but it's a, it's like a quad level house. So none oh, yeah. of our steps are that long. It's like, I think our yeah. longest staircase is like seven carpeted steps. So right. Also right. not the same level of, of risk that you can find elsewhere. <laughs> Yeah, what what you'll find is when a kid falls down one stair, they'll fall down them all. They'll just keep on oh, going. They yeah. have no way to no way to stop themselves. It's the uh, the law of gravity. And yeah, the, exactly. Uh, the first first law of Newtonian motion. Yeah. Um. Anyway, yeah. I, mean, I don't know if it's the first one. One of those ones. The one the one about inertia, right? Yeah. An yeah, object yeah. at rest will remain at rest, etc. Yeah. Um. Okay. Well, now we're we're ready for the MVP tally, Josh. So, who is your MVP for this episode? I I have a guess at who it is, and I'm thinking mine's gonna be different. So, yeah, I'm gonna give it to Gus for this episode. Okay. I think that he his character not only drives the episode, but also shows a range of different emotions. So we see him at a vulnerable state in his past. We see him at his dominant state in the present, and I just appreciate the the well rounded acting ability of Giancarlo Esposito playing the character, but also that we learn more about the character of Gus and and we also plant seeds that will that will pay you know dividends as we move forward. I love it. It's a great choice. It's a natural choice. That's who I was uh, leaning towards until I thought a little bit more about it. And then I was thinking actually after our discussion of that Walt cancer scene, I'm going to give it to Walt. And the reason is that scene, you know, again, the MVP, right? The person who sort of drives the episode forward. Um, that scene t- takes place at the beginning of the episode. And I think it's supposed to set the scene for what we see Gus doing and experiencing in the episode, right? So Walt does this soliloquy about control and never giving up control. And then we see Gus, we already talked about him, you know, being the uh, sort of controlling, domineering person, even with Walt in the restaurant. And then we see the backstory to Gus and understand how he got to that point, right? When Max was killed by Don Eladio, that was obviously a point in which Gus did not have control and had ceded control, you know, even just by having the vulnerability to go to this person's house. And so, um, so I, I appreciate how Walt's brief monologue at the beginning played a huge part later. I mean, I think it's, it's certainly clear that Gus is the more important um, or the more prominent character, I should say, in this episode. But for me, I think Walt and his monologue at the beginning set the stage. So I'm giving the MVP nod to Walt. Yeah, that's a good choice too. So that actually means that Walt and Jesse are now officially tied at 20 MVP votes apiece. Um, Gus, they are running away with it. Seriously, Gus has broken what was a five-way tie with Tuco, Hank, Saul, and Marie at four votes apiece. And Gus now has five so he is now in actually fourth place behind the tie of jesse walt skyler with 11 and now gus with five all right i think i think it's safe to say he will stay in front of tuco uh yeah i think that's that's (laughs) i would take that bet and i'm also willing to say that he will stay in front of crazy eight so yeah that's fair too and the fly (laughs) well you never know we'll see never know (laughs) good comeback all right uh well that's all i've got josh did we miss anything I think that's everything from this episode. All right. Well, thanks so much for joining us for another episode of Breaking Pod. We love hearing from listeners. So if we've missed anything or you just want to say hello, breakingpod at vernacularpodcast.com. We'd love to read your feedback. 
on the show if you've got something for us. Um, so breakingpod at vernacularpodcast.com. And until next time, I'm Zach. And I'm Josh. Have a great week. <laughs>